I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Minika from Leiden in the Netherlands. Please join me at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, where you'll get all sorts of extra exclusive content from our favorite crime writers, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, the victims speak out. We'll talk about Netflix's Jeffrey Epstein documentary, Filthy Rich. Then the newspaper that brought us Breakdown is out with a YouTube documentary about a 1985 church shooting. We'll talk about the imperfect alibi from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and hair model, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Kevin, remember when we first met and yeah. you like confessed to me one like late night that you what? thought you were losing your hair? <laughs> yeah. It's not happening. It's not happening. Whatever you thought was happening with your hairline, like the length shows me I have, you're fine. I have like the temple hairline. The double widow's peak. Is, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. It's that. And so a lot of people that just continues to go. I've had that since high school. Yeah, you're fine. So I'm just, just I was just always assuming. Now that I've seen the Wolfman you, I guarantee you're fine. Yeah. I wish I could get all that Propecia money back. <laughs> <laughs> it was unnecessary. <laughs> totally unnecessary. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and independent journalism podcast Maven, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, I just can't stop, Rebecca. I mean, who knows? Next up, a podcast with my cats. I mean, <laughs> the possibilities are endless at this point. As long as there's no UFOs in them. That's right, because that belongs to our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the hit Strange Arrivals podcast and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, how is that podcast going as far as you're still working on it, Have right? you solved the case? <laughs> you solved the case. Uh, you know what? Yeah, I'm basically done with my Good. stuff. So there'll be one more episode that's kind of scripted, and then there'll be two and possibly three bonus episodes, which are sort of extended interviews. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, most of the heavy lifting is done at this point. Heavy lifting for you or heavy lifting for your poor producers who have to work with you? Uh, it's a little bit of each. I do some heavy lifting and then I pass the weight along to them. And what I, what I have learned is that I need to do three takes 
of any voiceover. That's that's like the minimum. The first two always suck. Two out of the three will probably suck. And it, if I knew it was always going to be the first two, that would be one thing. But sometimes I nail it the first time, but don't realize it. And sometimes I just don't nail it at all, and they just have to make do. <laughs> yes. Rebecca, I have an idea how to make our podcast better, but it's going to require recording 66% longer. Okay. So we're going to have to record yes. Toby's answers three times. Yeah. Okay, Toby, say that again. Yeah. Okay, Toby, All right, say how about that this? again. Toby, yeah. how's that podcast going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going very well. Yeah, that was the crappy one. <laughs> yeah. No, I got to say, Toby, when I heard all the construction noise outside of your house last week when we were recording, I thought, oh, those poor producers at iHeart. <laughs> like, they have Toby, who is already deciding that he's going to record everything three times, and they also have trucks backing up. Yeah. Every four seconds outside Toby's house. It's just the beeping. Yeah. He did a good job of sort of washing that out. So I'm sure they can do, right? Have we told America what's going on outside your house? No, it was in our outtake last week. People know. Oh, okay. America knows if they listen to the outtake of last week's show. You mean if you listen all the way to the end, there's more good stuff? People, you know, I just learned a couple months ago that not everyone knows there's outtakes at the end of the show. It's something we've been doing since the beginning, like from five years ago, we've been doing outtakes. People are like, I've heard the credits. Yeah. Go past the credits. I I know your Twitter handles. I don't have to, you know. Well, what a delightful surprise for those people. They can go back and listen to all the outtakes. Over 230 outtakes. Five years of episodes. Five years of hearing that Toby has wheat checks for breakfast every morning. (laughs) Black coffee. Sometimes grape nuts. Not anymore, man. I I make my own granola now. Oh, God. Toby's turning into like a crazy skinny fitness person. Yeah. He's very unrelatable to my part of America. My hair's grown out. I'm going to get it into to, uh, man bun into dreadlocks yeah <laughs> wow <be> awesome. yeah <laughs> like Laura's man bun yeah all right well how do you guys feel about starting a podcast should we get going yeah let's get it done leading off did you in fact commit those acts I'm going to invoke my fifth amendment right how many times have you solicited a minor for prostitution same answer how many times have you solicited a minor for prostitution in the state of florida same answer he was the billionaire investor who hosted celebrities politicians and royalty he was also a pedophile who used his enormous wealth to traffic young girls in netflix's four-part series jeffrey epstein filthy rich we hear from several financiers who could have stifled the career which amassed the fortune epstein needed to commit his crimes and i thought do i want to play god and throw him in the street maybe destroy his potential today i wish i had but the series is primarily centered on several of the victims who tell their stories of abuse and their search for the justice that they've long been denied i started freaking out completely i was like okay okay like can we just get this over with this is just so unreal. This is not happening. Filthy Rich doesn't necessarily advance our understanding of Epstein, but it does go deeper into the people and events around his life. It's the largest platform yet for his many victims who are not afraid to name names. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Kevin, once again, this is a story where we fairly recently reviewed a podcast. Right. 
about the same story. Right, the mysterious Mr. Epstein. Yes, and I believe, I'll just tip my hand, that this documentary goes farther, goes deeper, and has done better than that podcast. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of them have gone farther, right? But they definitely have gone deeper. We've got Dershowitz in this documentary. Yeah. We've got lots of sources in this documentary. Yeah. Some of the interviews are new, and we're hearing from more victims, as you said. As far as sort of like the narrative of like what I knew about Epstein going in, I wouldn't say I've learned more. Because it's been pretty well covered. I learned more about what I knew. Mm. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there isn't like all of a sudden, oh, did you know he you know, was a secret agent? or what? And There wasn't any of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, and again, when we have this situation where we had this with the Aaron Hernandez case, we had it with Joe Exotic, where we have a podcast and a documentary. Bikram is another one. You know, that we try not to compare the two artistically, even though we understand the story. And I always feel like the documentary helps me understand better because of the visuals right. and it's just because you can see stuff you can see the people you can keep track sometimes it's more emotional yeah and uh, yeah so for that sense you know I'm really liking Filthy Rich yeah well you have several victims in this documentary and because we can see them they don't have to like re-identify over and over again yeah. in the way the podcast we get to know does. them yeah you really do get yeah. to know them and, and that's one of the things that Laura I know you liked about the documentary right was it's yeah. you know central focus on Jeffrey Epstein's accusers and victims my life is definitely still a struggle for everything that I went through with Jeffrey However, it is kind of come to an end. It's a good thing, it's a bittersweet thing because it's over and I can kind of work through the healing process now. It reminded me a lot of the uh, USA Gymnastics scandal, right. with the sex assault scandal that we, when, when we had different things, different documentaries that we watched with Larry Nasser, and we actually got to really hear from the victims uh, instead of from the point of view of him. Um, and in this case, it was the same thing. And it was just so victim centric. I mean, we had multiple victims that we heard from throughout the entire four episodes and really got to know their stories and their backgrounds. And some of them were just so heartbreaking, just the way that they were coming from difficult situations, perhaps maybe at risk home situations or whatever. And he was preying upon that. So when Kevin was talking about kind of the visual, I think that was one of the really effective visuals when they used like the drone footage, when they were talking to the victims and then they were using that to show, okay, here's these girls coming from, you know, the trailer park neighborhood. And then, then over here is like Jeffrey Epstein's big, you know, house in Palm Beach. And it was really like something where the visual made much more of an impact than hearing it described. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that the documentary does very well, too, is because they have some of the people who knew Epstein earlier. In the podcast, we heard some of the reporting around that, right? Yeah. But in the in the documentary, they actually have the wealthy people who perhaps recognized, and one of them says he did. He knew Epstein was a con man and a liar because he'd been involved in a Ponzi scheme, and that's why he wanted to hire him. Uh, mm-hmm. And Toby, that was the thing that really struck me, was that this very open discussion of Epstein's outstanding salesmanship. You know, he was able to lie to Dalton Academy. He was able to keep that Bear Stearns job. And we have the interview with his former boss at Bear Stearns. Was he a sociopath? Like, what do you think about Jeffrey Epstein as a character when we learn about him by watching these interviews about him? Like, he's a total sociopath. And I was thinking while I was watching it, I sort of had this half-baked theory, which I don't think is actually right, about how 
like these celebrity, wealthy, uh, serial sexual predators, like have this sort of mixture of narcissism and sociopathy. And I thought about some more. I'm not really sure that fits, but but I was just thinking Epstein is like pretty far on the on the sociopath scale in that he doesn't seem to be able to empathize with people at all and just mm. sees people as being, you know, tools for his own advancement. And who is it, Les Wexner? Yes. Something that really struck me was when, I, I can't remember which other old white guy it was who was talking about Epstein, but was saying that Epstein was like, he was going to, he knew he was going to get Wexner around his finger mm. because he would make Wexner like fall in love with them. Right. And then later there's that question about, you know, did you, you know, have sexual relationships with Les Wexner and he dissembles. It, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Tom Ripley from yeah. uh, Talented, Mr. Talented Ripley. Mr. Ripley in that he just freaking does this insane, illegal, awful stuff and just kind of assumes it's all going to work out. And it just kind of does for the most part. But in certain circles, that's that's okay. And in certain circles, they make it very clear that is the status What's quo. Okay? Stephen Hoffenberg is an interview. That's the guy who yeah. hired Epstein because oh yeah he knew hey, he had been this Ponzi right. scheme. The, the, and those those personality traits actually help you in business. Yes, at that level, doesn't make you a great human being. But it becomes very clear in this whole documentary. Yeah. And it's funny because I do think if you were to tell us, I mean, there was an episode of SVU about Jeffrey Epstein in 2012 yeah. that seemed fantastical. That was about 12-year-old models on a plane being taken to a private island and getting raped. And then they like raided the guy's house and it was full of naked portraits and he had a massage room. Like the details just track, track, track. It seems fantastical, like in the same way that Pizzagate, which is fake, mm -hmm. seems fantastical. But it's all true. There is a stat. There is yeah. a there is a level. I know what you're saying. Of like depravity among these one percenters, where sex trafficking and Ponzi schemes gets you in the door. I mean, that is what became very clear to me watching this documentary. Yeah, and I, you know, and, and like the old man financiers, to some extent, I give them a bit of a pass. No, because crooks are a dime a dozen on Wall Street. There was nothing to say. I could tell that he was going to run a Ponzi scheme, but I also could tell that he was going to be a child sex trafficker. There wasn't any of that. But do they also know that their actions enabled, eventually enabled all this horrible stuff? Don't give them they a pass. Do. Don't okay. give them a pass. Okay. But I can't hold them as responsible as... Gillian or whatever. Gillian Maxwell. Gillian that's, Maxwell. A, that's a different that's question. That's a completely different thing. They're, yeah. they're perfectly willing to like destroy, you know, grandma's pension fund. Exactly. Sure, yeah, yeah. Make them a few, <laughs> yeah. a few extra $100,000. You know, I mean, those guys are as amoral as anybody. It's just a different level in hell. Yeah, but it's like because it's not, you know, sexually abusing young girls, the idea that they're like, oh, well, you know, that's the greatest mistake of my life. Well, yeah, that might be, but there's there's a lot of other shit that should be keeping you up at night. Exactly. You, you know, so I, I stipulate to the argument. Every single woman in this film, I think, is incredible. Mm -hmm. You have Maria Farmer, the young artist with the sister Annie, who was a very early accuser back in the the 90s. They had to wait more than 20 years to see any kind of justice done. You had Shauna Rivera. You had Alicia Arden, the model and actress. You had Virginia Roberts, who was the Prince Andrew accuser, who also, by the way, is an Alan Dershowitz accuser. Mm -hmm. You have Sarah Ransom, who came forward in 2016. Courtney Wilde. You have all these incredible women in this documentary. And Laura Bricker, I don't know about you, but can you look at any of these interviews with these women and say they are anything but 
completely credible. Oh, no, absolutely. As I was watching this, I was just struck by the continuity between their stories. And every one of them described almost the exact same kind of grooming. It wasn't even a grooming ritual because there wasn't even time for grooming. It was like, come over, we'll give you 200 bucks to massage him and then woo, you know. Uh, But every one of them described this very similar situation And then also that sort of feeling of being, you know, either trapped in this because of their own situation where they're like, they couldn't get out. And the aftermath. And, you know, you have the one who moved to Spain. You have another one who moved to Australia to get away from this. You know, that right there is is a sign of just how significant this was. Uh, you know, that's what I, I keep going back to. But I just the victim centric nature of this this entire series just really put it in a different level than some of the other stories that we've listened to about Jeffrey Epstein. We also have to talk about the attempts by well-meaning, earnest and uh, good guy law enforcement people to actually try to take this guy down over the years. You have the Palm Beach police chief who, mm-hmm. you know, his officers investigated the case. He's not like a, a wild character, as Laura points out, but he did have some determination to see it through. And then you have like the extreme miscarriage of justice that we've you know talked about before on this podcast, with the mysterious Mr. Epstein, where Epstein got this incredible sweetheart deal and was allowed to basically continue raping young girls while he was supposedly, quote, in jail. But then you also have one of the most fascinating figures to me in the history of American litigation and law, and that is Alan Dershowitz, Mm -hmm. a lawyer that in my early years in journalism and interest in criminal justice, I really admired for his stance around defendant rights and like the fact that everyone deserves a good defense. What was your favorite movie? uh, Reversal of Fortune. It's still one of my favorite movies. It's a really, really good movie. Starring Ron Silver as? Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jeremy Irons as Klaus von Bülow. But what that movie and what Islanders was his early career was all about was about that even the worst among us like deserve a defense. And man, has he become a complicated character, not just in American politics, but in this documentary in a very, very stunning interview. And I believe they got this interview all in one take. And this was before a lot of like the Trump stuff before Alan Dershowitz was really in the news. He categorically denies Virginia Roberts allegation against him and challenges the filmmaker to get her on tape making that accusation. And then guess what happens? She has never been willing to accuse me in public. So please accuse me on this show. I challenge you. I was with Alan Dershowitz multiple times. At least six that I can remember. Surprise. Yeah. Listen, I don't want to say, obviously, we can't whether or not we think Alan Dershowitz did this or not. However, given the credibility of all these other things, does it or does it not make this an even more complicated narrative around Alan Dershowitz? It does. And what do you think about how the film handled it, Kevin? Well, I think it was one of the few, not to say one of the few times, I think it was an instance where it gave you know a platform to both of the people and let the audience kind of decide exactly. But who sounds more credible? Um, well, Virginia Roberts you know, also made an accusation against Prince Andrew. Yeah, easily a much more high-profile yeah. figure. 
And two seconds later, there's a photo yeah. of Prince Andrew, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Virginia uh, Roberts. Let me She's just, extremely let me, believable. Let me just answer my rhetorical question, at least anyone think I have a different answer. She came off as more credible. Because Dershowitz is basically saying, I, you know, let's sue each other. Now, Laura Bricker, we do see in the documentary Epstein's Private Island, referred to as Pedophile Island, something that mm-hmm. you also experienced when you were in St. John, correct? Yeah. Somebody referring it to as Pedophile Island. I did, yeah. I was out with the blind uh, sailing captain there, Captain Phil, and uh, he was referring to the two um, millionaires or billionaires. That He's like, on one hand, we've got Kenny Chesney over here who's done good things. He goes, and there's the pedophile island over there, the other guy. We don't talk about him. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, but but Toby, I mean, this points to something that is now in the news as we talk about, you know, police abuse and these other stories is the complacent complicity. I mean, the documentary talks to women who were teenagers at the time, put on a plane, taken to this pedophile island. And, you know, one of the interviewees says, you know, the guy who took the luggage off the plane saw these old men with these like 12 and 13 year old girls. The person who drove us to the compound saw it. The pool guy saw it. We have the interview with the electrician who talks about seeing it. What do you think about, you know, this framing? It's easy, I think, in retrospect to sort of say all people knew and did nothing. But is that not a valid question to ask at this point, like in 2020? Like, what would you do now? If you were the guy taking the luggage off the plane, I thought that was a very interesting question and framing that was raised by this documentary. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I I, I assume that he just must have been paying these people a lot for their silence and complicity. And then when they they talked to the electrician, it was kind of a weird conversation, you know, because he's kind of seen this stuff going on. And then somebody says, well, do you have kids? He's like, yeah, I've got daughters about their age. Oh, shit. You know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And he said, do you have any children? And I said, yeah, I have two daughters, 13 and 15. And he said, would you let your daughters come to the island? And when he said that, I realized I wouldn't let my two children within five miles of that man. It's like, did did somebody have to actually point that out to you? Oh my god! You know, you couldn't (laughs) couldn't notice that with your own two eyes. So that was a little that was a little weird in that he was sort of the voice of sort of moral fortitude when you know he literally was like thought it was kind of weird but was still showing up for work. I mean, if he had sons, he would have thought differently about the whole oh thing. My God. This whole fucking I have yeah. daughters thing makes me bananas. Yeah, it's it's insane yeah. making. Yeah, so I I just kind of assumed that they must be getting money. Toby, then- isn't just sort of the promise of a job when you're living on an island? Isn't that sort of leverage enough for yeah. some of those people? You're going to be a luggage well, it's, taker it's, and I'm going to give you a hundred bucks to shut your mouth. It is easier to not do. People do right? not want to get involved. This is something right. that yeah. I have seen is, over. Yeah. Kevin, we've written books about this. Yeah. We wrote a book about a guy who committed a murder and 200 people knew and never said a thing because they don't want to get involved. Yes. And I just gave an interview to a high school freshman who's <laughs> writing her book report <laughs> had, about that. And you would explain <laughs> that to her because she lives in the age of social media where everybody wants to get involved. <laughs> Like a time where people just don't want to get involved. I mean, there's there's a quote that Al Gore had in An Inconvenient Truth or whatever, which is saying that it's really hard to convince people of something that's going to harm the way they make their living or whatever, cost them money. And so I think that's that's part of the psychology, too, is that, you know, you're, you're probably resistant to drawing the conclusions that you ought to just because that's how you're paying the bills. And it's 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 just easier not to. Now, Laura, I thought some of the most extraordinary pieces of tape in this documentary were all the depositions of Epstein. 
at one point, one of the lawyers gets a psychological profile mm-hmm. of him done to figure out ways to poke him. Sir, uh, one witness described your penis as oval-shaped and claimed when erect, it was thick towards the bottom, but was thin and small towards the head portion and called it egg-shaped. Those are not my words. I apologize. But as Mr. Laura, what did you think of these deposition tapes and the way that Epstein, you know, kind of conducts himself in these interviews? Of course, of course, he's acting, of course, the whole time like nothing's going to happen to him. But he is asked questions that are, in fact, extraordinary. And is an egg-shaped dick larger at the tip or larger at the <laughs> It's larger base. in the middle. In it's the middle? Egg. Have you not ever seen an egg? <laughs> yes. I've seen an egg. It's an oval. I'm glad you clarified. Yeah. So I, I did, watching him, it just was rage-inducing because the complete denial and just like the attitude that it was just like, no, I don't know. No, I've never met her. No, I, I don't know anything about it. No. The only thing worse than that was Prince Andrew and his whole I don't sweat thing. That is weird as fuck. <laughs> I, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. This guy was like profusely sweating all over me and, and I don't remember her. I've never been upstairs at Keelan's townhouse how did you know that's upstairs i I, like his defense i don't sweat i'm like this is after the whole again weird denial of i don't know why i'm in that picture that wasn't the craziest thing to come out of that interview yeah i know (laughs) i know i used to not be able to sweat i can sweat now but (laughs) (laughs) back then i couldn't sweat she's obviously wrong my favorite part of the whole interview is when he was asking him to spell roberts (laughs) can you spell that i'm not sure can you spell that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Roberts. Well, I want to ask you guys a complicated question yeah. um, because I, I don't think this is necessarily knowable. I mean, we do get one of the things I really loved about this documentary is it does let the victims talk, especially some of the victims who recruited other girls to come and do massages or whatever, talk about yeah. the dynamics of sex trafficking. And they talk about the power differential between, you know, if you have no money and like your livelihood depends on this. You know, the way that it looks and the way that it feels and the way that it is and the guilt that they feel. I feel like anybody watching this would get it and not see a lot of these young women as in any way criminals, but as being victims. And part of their victimization was recruiting other victims like that's, I think, very clear. Which brings me to Ghislaine Maxwell. I find myself wondering, and this is not in any way like me letting her off the hook at all, because I don't know. I find myself wondering about her a lot because she is such a mysterious figure in this whole case. She gets mm-hmm. talked about as being completely complicit. And yet when you hear all these other stories of how all these other women were victimized, I just find myself wondering to what extent is it 4% that she's also victimized? Is it is she a victim? Is she just complicit? It's complicated. It's a question to ask. I know it's a difficult question to ask. Right, Laura? Yeah. Well, it's hard because I don't feel like we really got that deep into her story. I I don't really feel like I understood that much about her and other than, you know, what she was doing while this was happening with him. But I'm like, who is this woman that is, I'm like, because the way that you hear it described from the girls that were victimized it sounds like she's right there with Epstein the whole time, participating, watching. So it was hard to kind of watch these interviews describing her role in things without, again, knowing more about, like, who is this woman and, like, what happened to her to bring her to this place where she's able to either tune out, check out, or whatever 
or see nothing wrong with what she's doing. You know, the little bit that you do here is that she meets Epstein right after her beloved father dies in like fairly lurid circumstances. So, and they talk about how Epstein just, you know, he had the nose for the for the vulnerable. And, you know, he ran into her at a point in which he was very vulnerable. And I just have to assume was able to begin the manipulation at that point and kind of keep it going, like just keep the pressure on. It's interesting how he treats a woman of means versus women, or should I say girls from troubled homes or who are financially at risk. Well, he makes her sort of the, I mean, and and this is just me guessing, but we actually did a book about a guy who killed somebody with a woman present. Yeah. And she was also, I, in my opinion, We got two book plugs in this review. I love it. Right. But like, it's almost like the queen victim. So Mm -hmm. they they sort of place one victim as like the head victim Mm -hmm. who then victimizes a bunch of other people. And I find myself wondering if Ghislaine Maxwell is that person. That being said, she did so much freaking horrible stuff actively. Mm -hmm. And she's in the photos with Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and, you know, Know, all of the sort of like, the bed while yes molesting girls yeah, exactly yeah. I, I I just I have questions and I I think I'm not I can't be alone I'm also kind of torn on how I'm supposed to feel about well one of the younger victims I forget her name I'm sorry but her deal was that in order to avoid having to give massages and to be further victimized physically that she went and got yeah, other we, women yeah, that's, and that's victimization it is right and so she's kind of struggling with like. I ended up facilitating bringing other victims in. Right, but she's a victim. Were it not for me, she and she and she and she would right. not have been in this but situation. But she's a victim. She is, right. Quick question before yeah. we wrap up. Tim Kaine is in this documentary. Hey, Tim Kaine. <laughs> Tim Kaine. <laughs> I know, I love that. Well, how do you think it did addressing the question about Donald Trump and Bill Clinton? I saw Bill Clinton sitting with Jeffrey on the living room porch. I remember having a dinner with Clinton. He was there, and I never saw him do anything improper. I wish, you know, he would just come clean about, like, yeah, I was there, so what? Who cares? I didn't see anything going on. I mean, similar themes there, but... I think the documentary knows where it can go safely Mm -hmm. and knows where it can't go safely without it not being able to be put out because of years of litigation, and it tried to walk that line very carefully. And I don't blame the documentarians for doing it. You, you think they're, they're cool with an, accus- an actual accusation against Dershowitz, but... They had Dershowitz responding to that yeah. allegation. But there were no allegations made by any of the women in this against Bill Clinton, or you know, there have been lawsuits against Donald Trump that are their public right. record. Right. They don't have any of these women in the film, right. and they don't have Donald access to Donald Trump. Right. They don't have access to Bill Clinton, nor do they have any Clinton yeah. accusers in the film. I I mean, that feels like incomplete to me because even though, you know, no one saw Bill Clinton engage in wrongful conduct, or at least they didn't say that, I believe if they had, if, you know, the electrician had, he would have said that on camera and they would have used it. But I see, but they do contradict him in his, his, his assertion that he'd never been to the island. And it's like, well, who are you going to believe? The former president of the United States or these people and the flight manifest with your name on it 23 times. Right. But you know how it's journalism works. It's not a good works. look either. Well, I know that. You know how, like, if there had been an accuser who accused Bill Clinton and they couldn't get Bill Clinton to refute it, they wouldn't, can't include that. Right. 
They but can't. this is also supposed to be a time of brave journalism. And if that's there. Right. Now, I'm also maybe saying. maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Right. Right. There's that. And it's just a bad look. Right. But you might hate one of them. And you might even hate both of them. But Donald Trump and Bill Clinton do not have a great record as being advocates and champions of women, no. treating women well. Sure. So it tracks. We, right? They could have done what they do in other things where they had the accusation and then, you know, they have the text that says, we contacted uh, whatever his they, press yeah. person we and don't they declined know. to comment. Do we yeah. all agree we don't know? Yeah, we don't know. Quick question, Toby Ball. How do you feel about their, the way that they addressed the controversy around Jeffrey Epstein's manner of death in prison? It, it just didn't seem like they wanted to go there. It seemed like they're like, well, we got to say something about it. Well, yeah. But they didn't want that to be the focus. <laughs> so it kind of seemed like they did the minimum. What I got out of it is some people think it's fishy. Some people think the place was just such a hellhole that that could definitely happen. And then here's a forensic pathologist saying, well, they broke the hyoid bone in his neck. And that's really hard to do. I have here um, uh, from a totally unrelated case, of course, a hyoid bone. Now, there is some soft tissue still attached on uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, three fractures were found. It was Michael Bodden, the most famous forensic pathologist but, in the world. But didn't by you the way. like how he just is like, well, I don't have the actual one, but look, I have somebody else's that I'm just going to rip apart to with my fingers and show you. Right. There, there's some works. tissue still stuck to it. <laughs> yes, like, but Michael fuck. Bodden, Michael Bodden was just called in to do the George Floyd autopsy. Like he's a famous. He in is, the world that we don't know an awful lot. <laughs> he is very about, famous. All right. Well, that being said, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Filthy Rich, Jeffrey Epstein on Netflix? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Uh, thumbs up. You know, I wasn't sure I wanted to learn any more about Jeffrey Epstein, but I'm glad I watched this because it really wasn't so much about him as it was um, the victims telling their stories. And I, I liked the approach. I liked four episodes. It was a good length. Um, it was something I sat down and watched with, you know, like one day. And it was just, it was well done, well told, and had a lot of good voices included. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Filthy Rich, the new documentary about Jeffrey Epstein on Netflix. Uh, yeah, I give it a thumbs up too. I, I think largely for the reasons Large has said. Yeah, and, and as Kevin said at the beginning, like getting a chance to actually see uh, some of these people made an emotional connection with them that, that you don't necessarily get through the podcast. So I, I, th I, thought, I thought it was good. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Filthy Rich, the documentary about Jeffrey Epstein. This was a good series. A, a lot of what Jeffrey Epstein's life and crimes or have been documented in the news and in podcasts like The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. And this has a little more space to go a little deeper on... All of those different things that raise great questions. I think that the first three episodes are paced thoughtfully and deliberately, where we deal with a lot of the nature of the crimes and we meet a lot of the victims. The fourth episode, the pace seems to pick up where it sort of comes into present day, we'll say, as you know, the situation with the case evolves. It does get the rage meter up. I'm a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up, too. I really kind of loved this documentary. Um, I think that aside from what we talked about, about it really bringing the victims into focus and explaining sex trafficking, which is like a word we hear in the news, but I don't think a lot of people understand what it actually is, what it looks like, what mm -hmm. it feels like for victims, that it's not always or necessarily putting like 
a bunch of people in a truck and carrying them across a border and selling them at an auction like we see in movies. It's about Mm -hmm. suburban young women being sort of like dragged into these schemes where there's a huge power dynamic also. I mean, I, I think it's really, really good for that reason. I think it's also really good because it peels back a layer on a story of the like 1% or 0.001% that is undertold, which is that people like Jeffrey Epstein and people in his circles live in a way that the rest of us cannot imagine. They are able to skirt the laws of this land in a way that we cannot imagine. They can commit crimes that Kevin, you or I would be sent to prison for in five minutes Mm -hmm. in a way that we cannot imagine, whether it's sex trafficking or we hear that he was involved in this 40 million or billion dollar Ponzi scheme and was untouchable, able to fake his credentials to teach at high school, all this stuff like that's fascinating to me. And I think there needs to be more documentary work like this. So for all those reasons, I give this documentary a big thumbs up. All right. Well, before we move on, we need to get some business done. Uh, So, Kevin, on today's Patreon after show for our Patreon peeps, we're going to have an interesting conversation. One of the things I really want to talk about. I hope so. We haven't had it yet. so I know. But one of the things I really want to talk about is the difficulties of being a journalist in this particular time uh, after George Floyd's killing and the protests that have risen up around the country. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people are wondering why every single person on every single podcast isn't making very strong statements about their feelings and so forth. But, you know, I'm a journalist and I think we should talk about that line and and sort of where it is and why it's difficult. And I also want to talk about the outstanding work that the In the Dark team is doing right now, pivoting Mm -hmm. from their coronavirus coverage immediately to coverage of protests in Minneapolis. Also, by the way, on our after show, we're going to be talking about Lara Bricker's burgeoning career with her own podcast empire. Yeah. Should be kind of fun. Uh, also on Patreon this week for our patrons who support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Toby Ball is recording a Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast this week, which will be available as a video activity slash event for some of our patrons. Right, Kevin? Right, right. For everybody at the Crime Writers Nation sponsor level, they can watch the recording on uh, Crowdcast Video. They also can join either by chatting or Toby might even pull them up on the video screen. Toby, who are your guests for Bling Ring? And Which what, is yeah. the, the book. Yeah, tell us about the book and your guests. Uh, okay, so The Bling Ring by Nancy Jo Sales is about, if you cast your mind back maybe 10 years, uh, there's a period where a bunch of teenagers were breaking into the houses of celebrities such as Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and Audrina Partridge, who I wasn't sure who that was. Audrina Patridge. Jeez, Toby. <laughs> anyway, but it's about these teenagers who break into these places and, and steal clothes and, and they, you know, eventually get caught. Joining me will be Tara Ariano and Alex Segura. And then um, Julia Henderson from the Bikram podcast. Oh my God. Yeah. What an, it's an all-star book club. He's getting all these important people to read books they otherwise wouldn't read. Yeah. Toby, I feel bad when I ask someone, can you watch a 45-minute episode of Law & Order? And he gets Tara to on our podcast to read a freaking whole a book. A whole book. That's like weeks, man, for and me. Julia Henderson, she's got other things to do right she now. She does. And Alex is probably writing a book. Everybody who goes on is so like nice and thoughtful. And... Except that time I came on the podcast. That's true. It was not nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, present, present company excluded. I've only been on once, and I, I think the book I didn't like. You were on once, and nobody liked it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I always feel like I get a lot out of them. So anyway. Yeah. Well, as long as you got a lot got a lot out of them, Toby. That's what it's all about. Now you can, you can watch me get a lot out of it on, on live. <laughs> All right. So, Kevin, we have a great book club coming up. We're recording a brand new Mary with podcast that will be out by the time this podcast drops, right? So you get yep. that on patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And do we or don't we have, Kevin, some patron saints of the week this week from our Patreon? Our Patreon patron saints are John Waters and Angela Buster. Bless you. <laughs> oh, Angela, she's one of my favorites. Angela Buster's, yeah, she's been she's been doing this for a while. She's super. Is that John Waters, the famous film director? John, I Waters? don't think so. John's, <laughs> John's a new Patreon, and I'm trying to like you know I'm reaching out and saying, tell me more about yourself, That's John. Right. John, and even John, even if you're not the famous director, we still love you. Bless you, John. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you are the famous director, can you please tweet about our podcast? Yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be so great. All right, moving on. What really makes this one stand out? is, you know, it's, it's a double murder in the church of these two people who are universally loved in the community. In 1985, Harold and Thelma Swain were shot in a Georgia church after Bible study class. The case went cold, but in 2003, Dennis Perry was convicted based on eyewitness evidence from his ex-girlfriend's mother. So Bundy sets about knocking on doors. And he says that when he finally found Jane Beaver, she opened her trailer door and and said, come on in, I'll tell you what you need to know. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is out with a multimedia investigation into the Swain killings and whether or not Perry was wrongfully convicted. In addition to a print story and a bonus episode of the Breakdown podcast, the paper has produced a YouTube and Facebook documentary of the case called The Imperfect Alibi. Reporter Joshua Sharp picks up the trail, which leads to an alternate suspect. There was this other suspect, a man named Eric Spar, who had been a suspect in 1986, but had been dropped because he had an alibi. But I was interested in this man because his first wife had come to the police and said that he told her that he committed the murders. We'll be talking about the video documentary portion of this reporting, and we're going to be talking about some plot points for The Imperfect Alibi. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Lara Bricker, you are a former reporter and a current stringer at a newspaper outlet. It's not the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Let's just be real. It's a, it's a small local outlet. But how do you feel about the full multimedia approach that the AJC has taken to this story? Print story, podcast episode, and short form video documentary. What are your thoughts? I thought that was awesome because at the heart of this is absolutely tremendous reporting by Josh Sharp, who is the police reporter here, who went out and I'm thinking, oh, come on now. Undisclosed has already looked at this case. You know, you're thinking like they've just gone over this case. But then, you know, he's he's doing this amazingly in-depth reporting, finding new information. And then the newspaper is supporting that, which is awesome because we're seeing around the country, I mean, especially here in, in our area where I live, newspapers laying off, cutting staff, taking away resources. And so to see a newspaper, you know, getting behind a journalist and not only giving them that power to go out and, you know, do this type of reporting, but then to showcase it in this 
really innovative video documentary was great. And I loved that it was done in such a way that it was like we were sort of following along with him in a way as like kind of in his process and his thought process as he so it was a little more personal than just a straight on news story. Now, Kevin, I don't have any inside information on this from the AJC side, but I suspect that the existence of the Breakdown podcast itself has led this outlet to realize (laughs) that telling one story on multiple platforms at the same time is the way to reach the biggest audience possible. Is Bill Rankin to blame for this awesome reporting project, yes or no? What do Bill, you think? Bill Rankin is to blame for a whole host of ills. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking, of course. He's a great guy. Look, it is an uncommon platform for newspapers to do a video like this. The and New not York just, Times does it, but I can't but, think of any other outlet that does it regularly. Yeah, or, or I think this quality. I'm going to, you know... There were cellos. <laughs> cellos. In the soundtrack. He did the music. I just, I think like the AGC seems to appreciate that people consume the media that they put out, the content they put out... On different platforms. A lot of newspapers get stuck in the idea that we are a hard copy paper that we're going to throw on your porch. And, oh, but we also have a website. They realize there are multiple ways, the web, print, the podcast, which they were, you know, in the forefront of, and now this kind of video. Well, this 22-minute thing, it was a lot of work, and it's beautiful, and it furthers the reporting, and I think that's great. Well, Kevin, I have a follow-up question for you. Speaking of furthering the reporting... Uh, I do know that they took some of the undisclosed material, use it as a springboard. Undisclosed uncovered a lot of new information in the case. One, one of the biggest discoveries that they made was that Jane Beaver had been paid $12,000 in reward money for her testimony. And the defense was never told about that. I feel so proud and vindicated that an outlet like the AJC has finally looked. I mean, I'll tell you, the thing about working with on the Undisclosed team for all these years that has been gratifying is that these are three lawyers who have done a tremendous amount of legwork in actually advancing cases and solving cases. Right. They've gotten people freed. They've uncovered new evidence. They do their due diligence just like journalists do, but they also happen to be lawyers. But they're also advocates So journalism outlets, I don't think pay attention to them as much as they should. The AJCs, it's to their credit, I think, that not only did they credit them in this, but that also that they took their material and their investigation. And they like if you were a reporter, knowing what you know about this team, wouldn't you be like, we should look at this if Undisclosed is doing this, that we should. Advocates yeah. can sometimes do things that like well, advance can... facts, but journalists tend to poo-poo advocates. There is a thing there that I find kind of annoying in the case of Undisclosed. But look, at, don't forget, Robbie Ashadri also got Sarah Koenig to do the serial, which is which is great. Speaking of Bill Clinton, I was once part of a, an interview where all the radios, and it was one TV station, all the radio station people had to sit off to the, the side out of the frame and they set it up as if they were, it was an exclusive, and they played it off like an exclusive, yeah, because they didn't want to share credit. That's just a long way of saying they could have just like not said anything about the podcast right. undisclosed right. in their work and just gone from there. So, Toby, here we have a reporter who did this very, very tight documentary, which identifies a suspect. I mean, his reporting sort of furthered the case and identifies this new suspect. But, you know, in conjunction with the Georgia Innocence Project, this reporter is the one with this primary contact with the suspect and is the one who tells him, yeah, we know you did it. It gets there quickly. This thing is only 22 minutes long and a lot happens. Right, Mm -hmm. Toby? Yeah. I mean, I think that was one one of the good things about it is that it's the right length. It doesn't feel rushed, but, you know, there's no screwing around. They kind of tell the story. 
they get to the conclusion and then it's over. I, I just thought the whole thing was kind of interesting. And I was wondering if it was a test run to see if it got eyes and whether it seemed like that was a possible avenue to to uh, continue on later. You know, because plenty of podcasts have been picked up by television companies and, and made into miniseries or whatever. But this idea that you would, as a news organization, make a 20-minute highly produced documentary about something that you've already written about, and not only that, but also made a podcast about... You know, I, I think I, I'm interested to see if it's something they want to follow up on. I actually can. I mean, I don't I didn't talk to anybody who made this, but I did actually notice that there were a lot of things that point to this not being super expensive to produce. First of all, it was put out on two free platforms, YouTube and Facebook. Mm-hmm. A. B. A lot of the interview tape we hear is literally just film of a tape recorder in which they're playing the audio of the interview and showing up video of a tape recorder. You think that's easy? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying that like he didn't have to fly to interview this guy. Okay, yeah. And they also had a dual video situation where there was a local video of his interviewee and then we saw- In one of the interviews. Yeah, I saw Joshua like on a Skype video. Yeah. So they had like a dual video set up. These are all technologies that exist that make it possible that even in time of coronavirus, you could produce a short documentary like this. Music was fancy. And as Laura pointed out, it was actually Joshua Sharp who did the music like Jason Moon did for Bear Brook, Mm. apparently. And they did have, you know, film producers doing it. But the same way you can make a podcast, you can do this. And this is a print story. I mean, these they relied on titles on the screen. They relied on photos that they had taken. A lot of the same elements that you get for a long form print story. When I was watching this, I just kept thinking, like, they probably spent a few thousand dollars on this, but it wasn't a hundred thousand dollars. And they put together something really, really solid. I don't know. Laura, what did you think of just the packaging? You listen to the podcast as well, right? The special episode of Breakdown. How were these two different? I think that the documentary really, if you did not know anything about the case going in, it really gave a good overview, but also gave the new information for people that did know about the case It's like we were talking about earlier with the Epstein uh, story. It's easier to follow sometimes when you have a lot of players in a case when you can actually see them. And I just I liked being able to watch. Speaking of the packaging, I think one of my favorite scenes is when uh, Josh, the reporter, has um, finally tracked down Eric Spar. And so we're watching him. He's like, no, I'm going to call him. And he's like in his his little house. But I liked watching sort of the live play by play as, you know, we see that. And then, you know, the first time he's kind of, you know, talking to him. And then when he calls back with the information about the DNA test and we actually watch this kind of live reveal. Well, let me tell you something, Eric. The DNA test was done by the Georgia Innocence Project. And it showed that that your mother's hair matched the DNA found on a pair of glasses next to the bodies. And I want to see how you can explain that to me. Look, I have no idea. I don't have any glasses missing. What about you, Kevin? What did you think of Joshua being the one to inform this guy that his DNA matched and not the authorities of any kind? I'm, I'm still fascinated that the guy thinks it was the newspaper that came and got his DNA his sample. Hair. <laughs> you have it. You came and did it. <laughs> no, I think it was. it's good reporting. And it certainly seems like they've taken the reporting probably as far as it can go. And it's now going to be up to, you know, the authorities about whether or not they want to release Perry and then, you know, investigate Spark. 
I will say I would recommend to anybody who's seen this, is interested in hearing more, to listen to the Dennis Perry season of Undisclosed. There's a lot there. Well, they obviously uncovered shit. You and know we, that. But yeah. we also hear about other alternative suspects who claim to have admitted the crime and so forth. And what you hear in the Undisclosed series that I do think this documentary is missing is sort of the miscarriages by the investigators in this case who followed threads that made no sense. Mm-hmm. Once again, it had a lot to do with like people being able to drive places they couldn't have been, seen things they couldn't have seen, said things they couldn't have said. The one issue with the tightness of this is that you don't get all the different places where this went wrong. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff there, too, about sort of the role of this black church and this prayer group in this community and the Swains and how much they meant to the community uh, that sort of felt like because of the length of this was like missing mm-hmm. to me, but it was very tight. I completely agree with you. Um, Toby, are you hoping that the next time that like a newspaper decides to print a story like this, that they take this, you know, multimedia approach? Cause you listen to the podcast too, right? Are you hoping this kind of thing becomes a trend at the AJC and other papers? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I don't see myself watching a lot of 20 minute documentaries on YouTube somehow. Like, I don't know if that means nobody would, but as sort of an experiment and and as just sort of an unusual thing, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I felt like one of the youths watching a thing on YouTube, not going to lie. I did <laughs> like that about it. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out The Imperfect Alibi, the short-form documentary by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on YouTube and Facebook video and right to this multimedia project, Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down? What do you think? Uh, Big thumbs up. I I thought this was just a really interesting project, a really interesting use of investigative reporting. And, you know, in a time where somebody here who's worked in the media for a long time, we're under attack a lot, uh, you know, as a profession, seeing something like this where you see such good reporting is kind of restores your faith. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the imperfect alibi from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? I give it a thumbs up. You know, again, it's sort of it's on a small scale. It's interesting. It's quick. Um, and as sort of a first sort of venture into this territory, uh, I thought it was good. What about you, Kevin Flynn? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the imperfect alibi from the AJC? I thought this was a pretty unique way to distribute a story, so points for ingenuity. I think at 20 minutes, a Facebook distributed or Twitter distributed video is probably the kind of thing that hopefully maybe it goes viral. Again, it's just another way of sending out this information that goes beyond a newspaper that gets thrown on your porch every morning. If I know the case already, I may not have learned much from this video, but you get it's a little like a you know a previously you know in last season of yeah. this thing, it runs through. But the end is really important. I also want to say we made a, a, an error by not talking earlier about season f- seven of Breakdown with Bill Rankin. Because that's another great piece of journalism. I'm going to throw it out as a recommendation. It has to do with the shooting of Anthony Hill by a police officer. So it's not only super timely, but it's also another great example of the journalism being done at the AGC. Thumbs up for me, too. You know, it's funny. I think it would be easy for me, having produced all the Dennis Perry episodes for Undisclosed, to say, like, maybe it wasn't deep enough. Maybe it wasn't long enough. But I got to say, I really admire what the AJC is doing. They are a brave and innovative outlet at a time where there's just not a lot of that in journalism. I just think their focus on criminal justice generally is admirable. And 
I just love the folks there so much. So I got to give a thumbs up for this project as a whole. And yeah, this documentary, very, very tight, very short, easy watch, really well done. I wouldn't be surprised if this documentary ended up being proof of a concept for like a scripted Netflix series in a year or two. So nice job, Joshua Sharp and the AJC. Big thumbs up for me. And now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. This crime was not classic. It was Vlasic. Police in Vermont say a passing motorist threw a pickle out his window and struck a transportation worker monitoring traffic. Authorities describe it as a, quote, large pickle. And said the civil servant said the flying gherkin, quote, caused him pain. Aww. This kind of activity is not kosher. Cops <laughs> were not sweet but sour when they caught up to Christoph Hermansdorfer of Williamstown, Massachusetts. He was charged with simple assault with intent to dill. (laughs) 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 Nicely done, Kevin. (laughs) They say being a traffic monitor in Vermont is a thankless job. What other calamity befell those workers last week? Laura Bricker, Vermont native, what do you think? Well, I'm a Vermont native, so I know exactly what befell those poor people. Uh, Does anyone know what the honey wagon is? No. Negative. In the springtime, when it's time for the farmers to go spread manure on their fields, Sometimes they hook up the manure spreader behind their tractors and drive down the road and some little pieces of manure may go flying off and hit unsuspecting people on the sidelines. So So Vermont. (laughs) 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 Toby Ball being a traffic monitor in Vermont is clearly a thankless job. What other calamity befell those workers last week? Uh, A biblical flood of craft brew. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Lee, what do you think? They obviously got hit with a thing of maple syrup. I was thinking something about like a Ben and Jerry's flavor being named after them that was actually a terrible flavor. Something Rocky like that. Rocky Road. <laughs> exactly. All right. We should probably end on that note before we do. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> Um, We have a dog, Rebecca. Finally. It's about time. (laughs) Just for you. Yes. Um, In honor of your dog's, what is it, your dog's fifth birthday or fifth month birthday this week? It's his fifth month birthday, which is not actually a birthday, (laughs) but it's one we're celebrating anyway. (laughs) So we had, I had multiple people send me um, this along and it's it's a sad thing, but it's it's a nice memoriam. So Nigel, the golden retriever, was co-host of BBC's Gardener World with Monty Don. Since the program started filming at Monty's home in 2011, Nigel was a constant companion and secret star of the Staple Gardening Show and could always be seen sleeping in the background following Monty around the garden or not so stealthily dropping a tennis ball into the wheelbarrow so Monty had to toss it. Nigel sadly died of natural causes last month. And everybody in the UK that listens to us apparently loves this dog, so... As a Golden Retriever owner myself, I wanted to give a shout out to Nigel. Oh, All right, Laura Bricker, if folks want to submit their um, living animals to be cat or dog of the week next week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you for diet tips or UFO tips, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you for um, beard and hair growing tips, how can they find you online? I'm at Kevin Pickle Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers On after show. 
Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Mysterious Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the Nurse God Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the incredibly handsome and smart Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stan on maternity leave, Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the Yoga Loft about the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we are holding Bill Rankin hostage until he agrees to do a breakdown on TikTok. On behalf of all the crime writers, (laughs) thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Look at you. Doing I'm like meth- really trying. Wait, are you doing method acting to get into Are yeah. you doing like like harnessing your inner Marlon Brando oh, yeah. advertising oh, yeah. reader? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like trying to prepare myself for any question that will come my way. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Ball, has anybody from <laughs> ever accosted you on your summer yes. to talk about our ads? <laughs> Strange that you should ask, Kevin, but yes. <laughs> 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 Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.